Good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. As we, as Jonathan said earlier, we're going to fin- we're finishing the mini series on uh, that we've I titled uh, Generations of Grace. So this is part three, part three of that series. In this series, we've learned three truths about the coming King. This this coming King who will bring about complete restoration, redemption in Him. So we've seen the first Sunday, we two weeks ago, we saw the promise of a king priest. We saw that from Genesis 3.15. Uh, we saw that in the, the fall of the of man in the garden, that God promised this king priest, this Messiah, the Redeemer that would come. And we also saw, last week, we saw the precision of the, the king's pedigree. And, and as has been mentioned earlier, we, we saw how God used circumstances through the ages, or through the, the generations, I, I better said. We saw his grace as he, as he superintended uh, the line of the king. Today, we're going to look at point number three, the protection of the king's people the protection of the king's people. We're going to look at several examples of how God has faithfully protected his people throughout, uh, throughout the generations. Now, let me pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. Lord, I thank you for being here. The, I thank you for this gathering. Lord, I know um, we're missing several people and some students that are gone and, and on... I presumably home and others that are out of town visiting family. Father, we pray that you would be with them, that they would be uh, somewhere worshiping together with God's people. Uh, Lord, we pray that if there be any that are, are struggling this morning, uh, whether it be sadness, even depression, Lord, we would reach out to them, that you would be with them, that we know that you are the God of all comfort. Fathers, as we go through this holiday, this uh, Christmas time, when so many people seem so joyful, we know that there are many who are struggling. And Lord, we pray for them and we ask that you again would comfort them and that you would use us in their lives to come alongside to help. We thank you and praise you again in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the last two weeks, over this past two weeks, as we've said, we've studied the Messiah in the Old Testament. Really, really through the lens of, of Matthew 1, 1 through 3. And if you would turn to Matthew 1, I want to read the first three verses. Just the first three verses. Just to set our minds on what we're doing here. Starting in verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham... It says in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now I can't think of a better way, better way to spend Sunday before Christmas than studying the Messiah. Studying the Messiah of Christmas, the, 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 the Jesus, the Jesus Christ of Christmas. I can't think of a better subject about him on Christmas Day or, or with Christmas Day approaching and then the incarnation. The fact that God 
became flesh, became man. The, the truth is, is that God became man in order to redeem man. Oswald Sanders puts it this way, Jesus Christ became incarnate for one purpose, to make a way back to God that man might stand before him as he was created to do, the friend and, and lover of God himself, end quote. Well, in this study, we've seen that God will redeem mankind as he has promised because he always wins. You might be asking yourself, though, well, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me on this, on this Christmas? And if you find yourself struggling this Christmas time, it is encouraging to know that those who are in Christ Jesus will find victory in him. Right? Victory. We know that we will have truly have victory in Jesus, that we will reign with him. In this series, we've been encouraged to see God's faithfulness as he sent his own son to redeem mankind, just as he promised, exactly as he promised in the Old Testament. We've seen that he sovereignly brought this about despite man's treachery, and in some ways, and sometimes, some ways even through man's treachery. That's a hard thing to grasp, but as Joseph says in Genesis 50:20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, but God, he meant it for good. Beloved, we serve a good God who keeps his promises. There is no greater treachery than man's rebellion against the goodness of God. Man's rebellion, which started in the garden and continues to rage today, even in our own hearts. Now, I want you to see that a right understanding then of Scripture and a right understanding of, or, or a right worldview, if you will, starts with creation and the events that occurred in the garden. As such, as such, I want you to understand that all of history, all of history, points to the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of Man and the Son of God, and the true Redeemer. Charles Spurgeon says this, The greatest and most momentous fact which the history of the world records is the fact, the fact of Christ's birth. End quote. Brethren, I believe you can find Jesus on every page of Scripture. You will not find His name on every page, but I believe that every page points to Him. You've heard all roads lead to Rome. Well, I would say, I would, I would give you, to, or, or argue, argue that the whole of Scripture leads to Jesus, starting in Genesis chapter 1. The Old Testament Scriptures point to His coming, His coming as a babe in the manger. They prophesy that He would die on a cross. They foresee His resurrection and defeat of sin and death. They look forward to the, him crushing the power of the evil one, Satan himself. And the New Testament gives the implications of that coming. Helps us understand its significance. And the whole of Scripture culminates with his coming to reign forever in justice and righteousness. Luke tells us in Luke 24, 27, this is the Lord speaking actually, in Luke 24, 25 that is, He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? 
Then in verse 27, he says this, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. I submit to you, beloved, that Jesus is the point of the scripture. Jesus is the point of all the scriptures. He, and he began to explain to these disciples on this road to, this road to Emmaus, he, he began to explain to them how the scriptures pointed to him. And just as we have done in this series, he started, I believe, in Moses. He says that it says he started in Moses, probably in Genesis chapter one, and he began to describe the failure of the first man and the promise of a king priest, the ultimate man. He pointed to how God sovereignly and precisely used the events and the people of the Old Testament to fulfill His promise to send His own Son, send His own Son to this world to crush the power of Satan. And he showed them how the whole of history will culminate in his righteous and just, just rule. Beloved, this is more exciting. This is more exciting than any science fiction novel or movie could ever be. Many of you may be fans of Star Wars or maybe you follow the Marvel Universe. I'm here to tell you that those things have nothing on the epic nature of the truth of the Word of God. Nothing. The truth far, far exceeds what man could ever come up with. They cannot compare to the world that is described on the pages of Scripture. My prayer is that as we've gone through this series and as we complete it today, you will catch a glimpse of the grand story of redemption and of the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus. The best part of this story... It's all true. It's all true. Now, as I've said, we've studied over the past two, the first two points over the past two weeks. Let's pick back up with the last point. The last point. The protection of the king's people. The protection of the king's people. Now, we're two days away, as I've said, from celebrating Christmas, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to study some examples of God's faithfulness to protect His people and to preserve the line of the coming Messiah. I want you to understand this morning that we serve the very same God who sovereignly protected His people through the generations. Beloved, He will take care of you in the very same way if you place your trust completely in Him. The question is, have you trusted Him in every way? Have you trusted Him for your entire life? Or do you take it into your own hands? Now, I could have chosen many examples on the pages of Scripture of how God has protected His people, but I hope the few I've chosen will be of great encouragement to you. Let's look at the first example. God protected the original sinners, Adam and Eve. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, we looked at this account of Adam and Eve a couple of weeks ago. But I want to turn back there and I want to look at the events from the perspective of God's protection. We want to pick up really in verse 14. This is just after, this is Genesis 3.14, just after the fall when God is pronouncing the curses. If you look at, at Genesis 3.15, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
Again, we see, as we've, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, we see that this is a promise, the promise of a Redeemer to come. And But we also see that this is the beginning of an epic battle, which started right there in the garden. In our study today, we will see really this battle play itself out throughout history, all the way to the consummation of this current age. Intrinsic, really, to the promise that there's a coming Redeemer, though, is that God will prove to be victorious. He will prove to be victorious. There's this epic battle, and He will prove to be victorious, and He will deliver the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. This promise can be trusted throughout history. It can be trusted and believed today, even in your own lives, if you would just trust in Him. We know that God wins, and that we want to be on His side. That's ultimately, ultimately what we, we want to we trust in. You know, the question then is not whether you believe in God. Most do, right? I mean, I, I would say all do. All believe in God. They may say they don't, but they do in their heart of hearts. But the question really is, do you believe God and His promises? That's the question. Look at 3.16, Genesis 3.16. He says this to the woman, he said... I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In this verse, God makes childbirth more difficult. There's a lot more here, but but clearly we see it's more difficult. He made it more difficult to bring forth children. Now you may not see this this way, but I want to tell you that that's a protection of the man and woman. Because God slowed down the proliferation of evil by making it more difficult to have children. If you look forward in Genesis three seventeen through 19 it says that God cursed the ground, making it more difficult for the man to make his way in the world. God protects the man then, keeping him from easy prosperity, which would make this world more desirable. Think about it. If, if it was easier, for if, if the ground brought forth uh, its produce in an easier way, then we might, we might become very comfortable here. As a matter of fact, I think that's what we see here in America, right? We've, we've, we've grown very comfortable because it's very easy. And, and therefore, we don't, we don't desire, we don't yearn for another world. Another and greater, much greater world. Beloved, if this world is easy and comfortable, we might want to stay in it. The people, Adam and Eve, the, the, the man and woman, might have wanted to stay if, if God had not made it so difficult. That would be a, great, a tragedy of grand proportions because we would live forever without a right relationship with our Creator. It would be, a, it would be just tragic. We would be forever separated from the love and the goodness of God. If you look forward in Genesis 3, 2021, 20, it says that, that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Then it says this in verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We see here that God's provision. God's provision for the covering of Adam and Eve's sin. It ultimately points to the, the atonement of the Messiah. The shedding of, of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Again, we see God's hand of protection upon the, the man and woman as He made this provision to atone for their sin. He, he didn't intend to leave them in that way. If you look again at the text in 322, 
This is then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What's the tragedy in that? What would be the tragedy? They would live forever in their spiritual death. It seems like a paradox, right? They would live forever spiritually dead. That would be a tragedy, yet God protects them from that. And how does He protect them? It says in verse 23 that the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which, it was, which he was taken. In verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, so God did not allow man to stay there and eat from the tree of life and, and live forever in his, in, his sta- in, the, in his current state. Current state of being separated from God. This may have been horrifying to them, right? Probably was horrifying to them. God's actions, though, set forth the plan of redemption. Set the plan of redemption in motion. The only way for the man to be truly redeemed was for him to be completely lost. And it really works that way today. The only way for you to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is for you to realize that you're, you're lostness. To realize that you're separated from your Creator. God drove the man and woman out of the garden so that they wouldn't stay in that state forever. So they would have to come face to face with their need for a Savior. And God gets the glory because He is that Savior. He is man's only chance at redemption. Beloved, God through Jesus Christ is your only chance at redemption. He is the way and the truth and the life. Redemption in His name started at the moment that the the man and the woman were driven from the garden into this cold and dark world. Despite their, their difficult situation, God had promised to redeem them and He promised to protect them. He was their only hope of redemption. Beloved, He is your only hope of redemption. It leads us to our second point. Point number two, that God protected their seed. God protected their seed. Genesis chapter 4. After Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, they, they had their first offspring, Cain. Now we've said, we said last week that Cain, or that Eve, had an expectation that Cain was the Messiah. But he turns out not to be the Messiah at all. Not even close. He turns out to be the seed of the serpent. And this epic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is continued here. And as we have said, will continue. Here in Genesis 4, Cain actually murders Abel to destroy all his rivals. There's no doubt in my mind that Cain would have continued to murder his rivals, including Seth, had God not driven him away from the family. He wanted all the glory for himself because in Cain's mind it was all about him. But God, God will not share his glory with another. In Isaiah 42, 8 it says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. You see, God wants his people... He wants his people in, to trust in his provision for sin. And in this case, Cain trusted in his own strength. He was ultimately trying to find favor with God through his own good, good works, while Abel trusted in God's provision for salvation. 
You see, there's always been a stark difference from, between the grace that saves and the religion that condemns. And a stark difference between the grace that saves and the religion that condemns. Our own good works will always condemn us because we will always fall short of the glory of God. Paul says it this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Clearly, even from the time of Adam and or Cain and Abel, salvation is all of God and His grace. He has a, he's had a plan of redemption, uh, the redemption of mankind from the foundation of the world, from, from, from the very beginning. And He wants us to trust in His salvation and not in our own works as Cain did. Cain was so intent to look good before God that he was willing to kill for it. Let that hang just a minute. He was so intent to look good before God that he was willing to kill for it. So God drove Cain away from his family. Cain's actions were evil, but God used them for good. He gave Seth to Adam after driving Cain away. He gave Seth to Adam and Eve, which protected the line of the seed and clearly, clearly highlights that God protects his people. God protects his people. This brings us to the third example of God's faithfulness. God protected the righteous. God protects the righteous, or and protected the righteous. This is Noah. If you turn to Genesis 6, this was the time just before the global flood was sent by God to judge the earth. Man had filled the earth as he was, as he was directed to do, but he had also filled the earth with violence and unrighteousness. And Genesis 6.1 we see this story that, that uh, men beginning to multiply on the face of the earth and the sons of God and the daughters of men, uh, they, they took wives, the sons of God took wives from the daughters of men. It's hard to exactly or know exactly what's going on here, but we know from an understanding of the rest of Genesis and Scripture that this has something to do with this ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we, we, we should understand this then as another bid to eradicate the righteous remnant of God in Genesis 6.3, the Lord says that He will not strive with man forever. And we don't know, in Genesis 6.3 and 6.4, it's hard to know exactly what's going on here. We can make some, some educated guesses and, and unpack that, but we don't have time today. But uh, what I want you to see is, is that this is an attempt. What's going on here in the, the first four verses of, of, these, of Genesis, 6, Genesis chapter 6 is an attempt by Satan to hijack God's creation for his own purposes and glory. In 6.5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The idea here is, is that, God, that God was grieved over man's evil. It was so great. He was grieved over man's evil. His creation, God's creation, was nothing like he intended it to be. Not that he had lost control. Everything was in his, his purposes and his sovereignty. Uh, man was intended for righteousness, yet he had descended in great evil. Now, I would say that, that this happened in order to show the brilliance of the, the, the goodness of God and, and many of his other attributes, grace, that wouldn't be seen outside of the evil of man. In a sense, what was going on here is it was hell on earth. 
But let us understand, this, again, was all for God's ultimate purposes. Just as the brilliance of a diamond is better seen against a black backdrop, God's holiness and righteousness are better understood when contrasted with great wickedness. Genesis 6-7, it says this, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But look at Genesis 6-8. Let's just say there. It says, Noah, but Noah, found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. In other words, Noah found grace. 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 Let's be clear, there's nothing inherently different about Noah. Outside of God's grace, he is just as wicked as the rest. God God would have been completely justified to destroy every human, including Noah and his family, and start over completely. Yet he did not. He chose to put his grace on display for all to see. See, the earth, according to 6.11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. We see that, that man's unrighteousness seemingly knew no bounds. Things were as bad as they could be. This, this is the height of man's wickedness in all of history. God tells Noah then to make an ark of gopher wood to save them through the flood. In 6.17 it says, Behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. God was completely justified in doing so because the evil had proliferated to such an extent that it was, again, the height of all wickedness. God is going to wipe out the entire human race except for Noah and his family. And the text says that God will establish His covenant with Noah. He promises to protect Noah and his family. And God always does just as He promises, right? He told him to bring two of every kind of animal onto the ark and seven of some clean animals for the purpose of sacrifice. And Noah did this, verse 22, according to all that God had commanded, he did. And then look at verse chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Noah obeyed God, and tragically he was the only righteous one left he was the only one left of the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, this, this is it. It's down to Noah. Literally down to Noah. It looks as, as though all is going to be lost, yet God in His faithfulness prom- preserves the promised seed by destroying the world and saving Noah and his family to start over. It's a recreation, ultimately. Again, we see God using evil in the world for good. The faithfulness of our God is astounding. He promised to deliver Noah, and he did so, but he also showed his grace. He showed us his grace in doing so. He promises to to deliver mankind, and he will deliver on that promise because we serve a faithful God. He will deliver his godly ones if if only you believe. This brings us to our fourth example of God's faithfulness. Now we could spend the rest of this sermon talking about the faithfulness of God in protecting Abraham. 
we could we could we can who can forget though then that what he did in giving Abraham and Sarah who was barren a, a son named Isaac we can also remember that that Abraham repeated, repeatedly tried to take matters into his own hands producing a son named Ishmael and twice giving Sarah over to evil rulers to protect his own skin so much but I want us to look at Another example. Another example of God's faithfulness. Turn to Genesis 38. Actually, turn to Genesis 37. This is the story of Joseph. It's well known. His story starts, like we say in Genesis 37. God used Joseph to bring the nation of Israel into Egypt to protect them from the evil inhabitants of the land. God had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And we see that that promise play itself out on the pages of Scripture all the way to this point where God now takes the the people of of Israel into the land of Egypt. And he uses Joseph to do that way, do so that way. And we we see up until this point, if you read and study these pages, you see instances where Jacob or Israel's offspring are threatened by the people of the land. So God in His faithfulness uses Joseph to deliver them to Egypt where they can grow into the, to a great and mighty nation. Ultimately, the story of Joseph is all about God's faithfulness. God, not Joseph, is the hero of the story. I want you to understand that. God, not Joseph, is the hero of the story. But I hope to prove to you this morning that, that the story of Joseph is more about another brother. More about another brother. Remember, this is all about the line of the coming Messiah. And Joseph, as much as we love him, is not in the line of the Messiah. God used Joseph in mighty ways, to be sure. But I would submit to you that he used Joseph in the life of another brother named Judah. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, we read it earlier, it says Judah. Now, Jacob was the father of Judah. That's in verse 2. And his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You see what? Do you see Joseph there? Who do you see? You see Judah, right? Let's pick up the story in Genesis 37. Jacob, now called Israel, was in the land of Canaan, as we've said, with all his sons. You might remember that Joseph was his favorite son. Joseph was born to Rachel, whom Jacob loved. And the scripture said, says that his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now you might remember, even in your study of Joseph, you might remember that Joseph interpreted a dream in which all his brothers and his father bowed down to him. Now this didn't sit too well with the brothers, so the brothers went to pastor their father's flock in Shechem. This is Genesis thirty-seven, twelve, And Israel sent Joseph, Jacob that is, sent Joseph to Shechem to see them. And Joseph ultimately found them in Dothan. This is where we pick up the story. Look at that thirty-seven, eighteen. Genesis 37, 18. It says, When they saw him from a distance, before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into the pits. And in one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. 
Now look at verse 21. But Reuben, Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. That sounds really good. Reuben's a nice guy. But it's up to, it's up to, listen to verse 22. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. That sounds like it might be okay. But in reality, what's going on here is that Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. Yet he had committed a heinous act by laying with his father's concubine. And so Reuben really is trying to make up for this. He's trying to make up for what he did wrong so that he can regain his status before, before Jacob. And Simeon and Levi, the second and third born, had also fallen out of favor for their treachery. Reuben, Reuben was out of the good graces of Jacob, so he wanted to be the hero of this story to gain favor with his father. But that wasn't meant to be. In God's providence, there's going to be an even more unlikely hero. Pick up in verse 23. We see that Joseph reached his brothers, and they they did as they said. They threw him into the pit. Verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal, and then some a caravan of Ishmaelites came by, and, and they were going their, to their way to Egypt. And, and look at verse 26. I want you to see this. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. And so they pulled him up, and, and they pulled him up, and, uh, and lifted Joseph out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So the question in this, whose idea was it to sell Joseph into slavery? Judah, right? This is the same Judah that's in the, the line of the Messiah. Let's understand then that Judah, because of what the, the brothers had done, Simeon and Levi and, and, and Reuben, he was the most likely to accede to firstborn status, considering their actions. So who is the true leader here? Who, who is the leader? Obviously the, Judah, but, but he's leading in the wrong way. He's leading in the wrong way. Just keep reading. In Genesis thirty-seven twenty-nine, it says this, Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not, not in the pit, so he tore his garments. Verse 30, He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. Ask for me, where am I to go? I have no other chance. That's what he's saying. I have no other chance to get this favored status back from, from, with my dad, my father. He lost his, his last chance. There seems to be no heroes in the story. This is our set, that's our setup, Genesis 37. Now look at Genesis 38. Now I fully realize that, th- that we are probably the only church in the world studying Genesis 38 the Sunday before Christmas. But, I'm, but may I remind you that God's faithfulness in keeping His promise to send the Messiah is best highlighted in the most dire of circumstances. I want to try to summarize the story. After selling Joseph into slavery, Judah takes a wife, the daughter of Shua, from among the Canaanites. And his wife bore him three sons. The first son was named Er, and he was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh took his life, verse 7. So Judah then sent his second son to her to give him an offspring or seed. That's important, right? Because Judah is in the line of the Messiah. 
So he sends second son in. Look at the text, verse thirty-eight or chapter thirty-eight, verse nine. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's life, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he took his life also. Two in, two down, one to go. Right? There's three brothers. Two are already gone. Look at verse eleven. Then Judah said to his daughter, daughter-in-law Tamar, "Remain a widow." In your father's house until my son, son Sheila grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brother. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So he basically sent her away. He basically he sent her away, right? So, so what we're seeing here is Judah's reckless, recklessness and irresponsibility is, is threatening the line of the seed. It will end if something doesn't change. Pick up the story in verse 12, chapter 38, verse 12. Let me summarize what happens. A considerable time passes. A considerable time passes, what the text says. And Judah doesn't lift a, a finger to, to remedy this situation. Israel is in the, in the land of the Canaanite whose re- religion threatens to absorb them. I mean, it looks bad. Remember that epic battle that I've been talking about? This, we're in the midst of that ap- epic battle. God's covenant with Abraham is threatened, and Judah, Judah is unwilling to do anything about it. So Tamar, his daughter-in-law, takes things into her own hands. She tricks Judah into laying with her by posing as a prostitute. Now I'm just summarizing the story. She takes his signet ring, cords and staff, which he promised, she takes them, he had promised as pledge of payment. She does this to prove that he was the one who impregnated her. This is really, this is really terrible. I mean, this is a terrible story. But this is, this is a, a great example of God's protection of his people. But when Judah sent to pay her and to, to have her pledge returned, or his pledge returned, right, he, he, the cord and the staff and the, and the signet ring, she was nowhere to be found, so he called off the search. And he left her with the pledge, so that so that she wouldn't or so that she wouldn't say bad things about him. And you pick up in the story in verse twenty-four. It says now about three months later that it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she has become she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, "Bring her out and let her be burned." And it was while she was being brought out that she sent her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring, cords, and staff are these. Well, guess what? They were his. They were his. It was his stuff. And so he knew what he had done. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her Gift her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. <clears throat> it was at this point that Judah came to see his own irresponsibility and his treachery, which threatened the promised seed. So Tamar gave birth to Zerah and Perez, and we see them in, in Matthew chapter 1. Yet the, and so therefore, the promises of God were, were preserved. But that doesn't end the story. That doesn't end the story. 
as we've seen according to 38.12, Genesis 38.12, considerable time had passed. Now this is what I want, this is the important part. I submit to you that enough time had passed for this to have occurred around the same time of the famine which, is recur- which occurs in Genesis 42. In other words, the events of Judah in chapter 38 parallel the events of Joseph up until the time Judah and Joseph come together in Genesis chapter 42. At that point, Joseph is now second only to, to Pharaoh. There's a great famine in the land, and through Joseph's actions, there's grain available in Egypt. So Jacob sends Joseph's brothers, minus Benjamin, to buy grain. They went to Joseph, whom they didn't recognize, to buy this grain to survive the famine. Joseph, of course, recognizes them, and, and he accuses them of being spies. And he told them that they would not be released from Egypt unless Benjamin, the youngest son, came to Egypt. Let's pick up the story in chapter, in chapter 42, verse 17. So he put them all in prison for three days. And, and now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and, and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in, in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households, and, for the famine of your households, and bring the youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and you will not die. Now, look at verse 22. Reuben. Reuben pops back up. Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Now remember, Reuben was trying to to find favor with his father. So again, Reuben's trying to look good. Now Joseph understood what they were saying. And he kept Simeon, and he sent the others back to the father Israel. If you look at verse 36... Jacob says to them, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And, and you would take Benjamin, and all, all these things are against me. And Reuben's pop speaks back up and says this, you may, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you, but put, put, put him in my care, and I will return him to you. And Jacob refuses. But here's the problem. Chapter 40, 43, verse 1, The famine was severe in the land. Famine was severe. So severe they had no choice but to go back with Benjamin. If you look at chapter 43, verse 8, this is what I want you to see. This has all been a big setup for this. In 43, 8, Judah. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and, your, and our little ones. Verse, verse 9. I myself... Now, get this. This is Judah speaking. I myself will be a surety for him, and you may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you, set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Boy, that's a different Judah, isn't it? It's a completely different Judah. This is the Judah that's acting post uh, Tamar, post those, those, the situation in Genesis 38. Now they go back to, face, to Egypt to face Joseph. And Joseph sets up a scheme to implicate Benjamin in the theft of his silver cup. And his brothers are brought back to face him. And if you pick up the story in, in chapter 44, verse 14, it says this, When Judah... So guess who now is the, the center of the story? It's not Joseph, it's Judah. 
Judah is the point of this story. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell to the ground before him. Verse 16, So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found iniquity of your, the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my son, Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose dispossession the cup has been found. Look at verse 18. Then Judah approached him. A completely different Judah now. Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. And then Judah does this. He lays out the whole story. The whole story for Joseph. And he says this in verse 32. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Judah is now standing up and taking responsibility for his actions. The one who was completely irresponsible, the one who who endangered the the line of the seed is now taking complete responsibility. He's the one who sold Joseph into slavery. Now he stands up to take full responsibility and he's willing to lay lay down his own life for the sake of his brethren. Sound familiar? He has become the right kind of leader is this a coincidence? I think not. Remember what he said to Tamar with Tamar in 38:26, she is more righteous than I. As I did not give her to my son Sheila. God used the actions of Tamar to make Judah understand his unrighteous actions and it changed his direction forever. Is that not protection of God's people? And not protection of God's people. In Genesis 49, 1, we pick up with Jacob's prophecies concerning his son. He says this. He, he assembles them together and to tell them what would befall of them in the days to come. And he says this of Judah. In, verse, in chapter 49, verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah, verse 9, Judah, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches and he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? And then it says this in, verse, in chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, would be the, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So we see that the Messiah will come through the tribe of Judah, the Apostle John picks up on these, the imagery of the lion and so when he says that the, that the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open up the book in, the seven, in its seven seals. See, God used the evil actions of Joseph's brothers to bring about this entire result. Remember Genesis fifty twenty? We quoted it earlier. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God used evil for good to protect his people. 
Let's look at the last example. God protected the Savior. God protected the Savior. In Exodus chapter 1, just as a, as a setup, quickly, as a setup, the text says that the land was filled with, with the people of, of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, and the king of Egypt saw them as a threat because they had grown to be such a mighty nation within their land. The Egyptians were in dread of the Israelites, so, <coughs> so the king of Egypt was very concerned, and he told the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Hebrew boys. But God was good to them by making the Hebrew women able to give birth before the midwives arrived. Therefore, God, because the the midwives feared him, he established households for them. But then he says this, he commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you, you are to keep alive. Clearly, what we see here is an assault on the people of God, yet God was faithful to protect them. Pharaoh meant this for evil, but God turned it for good. Brethren, again, we see the epic battle between good and evil, which has occurred from the beginning. There's no mistake what's happening here. Satan knows that all of history is leading toward the Savior, and he will stop at nothing to change its course. He has been a murderer from the beginning, yet again we see God's faithfulness on display as he protects his people. Now, I believe not one of them perished because God was protecting them. And God protected Moses, his deliverer, who delivered the people out of the, the nation of Egypt. It's very interesting that Satan, through, through Pharaoh, tried to strike down Israel's sons but failed to do so. Yet God did strike Egypt's firstborn with the tenth plague because God always wins. This brings us to... Another instance where Satan tried to strike down the Messiah by killing babies. If you turn to Matthew chapter 2, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Satan knows the, the significance. Satan knows better than anyone the significance of the birth of the Messiah. He knows that his time is limited and he will stop at nothing to change the course of history. Yet he cannot because God is always protecting his people. God is always turning good things to good. In Matthew 2 7, we see that the wise men came to worship Jesus. Herod wanted them to, to wanted to, them to let him know where the King Herod wanted to know where Jesus was at. Ironically, and, and Jonathan mentioned this earlier, ironically, he was only a few miles away. Just a few miles away from Jerusalem in Bethlehem. The, the wise men were, were warned in a dream not to return to Herod because of, because of his evil intentions, but left by another way. And let's pick up in Matthew 2.13. Now when they were gone, they had gone, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. The text says Herod is going to do this, but who's really doing this? Right? Satan. Herod is just doing what Satan would have him do. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. Now look at verse 16. 
And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from, the, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Herod was enraged and had all of these male children slain. Yet we see that God sovereignly protected Mary and Joseph along with the boy Jesus. Beloved, Satan is always trying to hurt God's people. He is always trying to change the course of history. And he will do so to the very end. In the book of Revelation, John speaks of a time to come when Satan will make war with the saints just before the second coming of Christ. He does this because he knows that his time is very short. And he must know that God will continue to thwart him and will continue to use the evil actions for the good of his people and for his glory. Brethren, I, beloved, I don't know what you're going through this Christmas. I don't know the difficulties that you're facing. Your situation, your circumstances may be dire, may be very difficult. But I do know this, you serve a mighty Savior. You serve a mighty Savior. You serve a, a Savior who has, who has made some, some mighty promises. He promises a world to come that is beyond our every imagination. And if you trust in Him, you will use even the evil actions of people who hate you to bring about good. Just like He did with His own people, with His people as we've studied in the Old Testament. As Paul writes in Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Beloved, we still serve the God of Adam and Eve, we still ser- serve the God of Seth. We still serve the God of Abraham. We still serve the God of Judah. We still serve the God of Moses. We serve the God of, that, that has, has superintended everything in history leading up to one point, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The birth of the Redeemer. The birth of the one who would restore all of mankind, the birth of the one who will, we will be with forever, right? Because he was born to die. He was born to die on a cross so that he might redeem us from our sins. So that we might, if we believe, live with him forever. Beloved, I hope you will truly trust this promise. Truly trust it. Not just believe in God. Not just believe something about Him. But truly believe in His promises. And trust His promises as we approach this Christmas and into the new year. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again. Thank You for this time together. Lord, I, I hope 
my hope, my hope is that the folks here would have seen something of a glimpse, even, of your goodness. Something of a glimpse of the richness of salvation. Just a glimpse of your grace. Just enough to whet the appetite. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming. God made flesh. Father, we praise your holy name. In Christ's name, amen.